So this last week, my family, we were on vacation, had a great trip uh, to the beach, but my, my oldest boys, or my two boys, Connor and Cole, especially, the last few weeks during summer, uh, they have just been on this kick of playing battleships. You know, the old game, like D, three, hit, like that whole thing. They have loved playing battleships. So even this last week, here we are, vacation, beach, like, let's play battleship. And I'm like, okay, we could have done that at home, but whatever. So we've been playing a lot of battleship recently, and I don't mean to brag, but I'm pretty good at Battleship. And I know many of you are thinking, Brian, there is no skill involved with Battleship. I would argue that because starting out when we first started playing, I was winning every single time. But then just this last week, I'm playing with my middle son, Cole, and the very first one that he calls, F7. I'm like, are you kidding me? Hit. Like the very first one, I couldn't believe it. And he continues to sink that battleship. I'm still missing all over the place. He calls out the next ones and it's another hit. Like this kid is barely missing. I'm like, this cannot be possible. We are over halfway through the game. He's sunk half my fleet. I think I've hit like just the two battleship. And I finally, I'm like, I don't wanna assume something. I don't wanna accuse him of anything, but I'm like, Cole, how are you so good at this all of a sudden? Like, are you cheating? And he just starts cracking up. He just starts cackling. And I'm like, all right, so like, how are you cheating? How are you this good? And he says, well, dad, and I just thought, because he's real fidgety like me, moves around a lot. So he was playing the whole game standing up. He's like, well, if I play standing up, I can see all your ships. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, buddy, like, that's not cool. He's like, but I'm winning. And I'm like, yes, you are. But it gave me a dad moment to be able to teach a little bit to first off, I'll say, this game doesn't count, we're starting over, of course. But then to explain a very important principle that yes, even though the purpose of the game is to win, the end result should have a winner. I said, but it's not just the end result of winning that matters, the process and the journey of how you won, that also matters. So it's not just you win, it's did you win the right way? So it's not just the end result that matters, it's also the process by which you get to that end result. I share that because we're studying King David, Old Testament, David and Goliath. We looked at that story a couple weeks ago. But King David, as we're studying his life, King David, the end result, God is already stated, David is going to be king. That is the end result. But what we see, especially today, is it's not just about David being king, but it's also the process and the journey by which David becomes king that is also important. It's not just that David is gonna be king, end of story, that's the end result, but how David becomes king, the journey he takes to become king, that middle section before he officially takes power and takes over as king, that matters also. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in really two sections uh, this morning. We're going to start in 1 Samuel 18, and then we're going to end and stay in 1 Samuel 24. So if you want to be in 1 Samuel 18, we're going to get to that in a second. Let me give you a quick recap if you've not been with us through this study so far. Saul is a major character in, in David's life. Saul was the first king of Israel. God chose Saul, was a good king starting, starting out, but he started to become disobedient. And what we see with Saul is that he's a very self-centered and insecure leader. 
self-centered and insecure, and he would only follow God when it was convenient. So that led to, as he took on power and responsibility and more influence, as he added those as king, he became a dangerous king and a very destructive king and even more disobedient. So God said, hey, it's time for you to not be king anymore. I'm going to choose a new king. So God chose a king, a man after his own heart, David. So God had Samuel, which was a prophet, to go choose the next king, which would be David. David's heart was very, very different than Saul's. David had a humble heart. He was very faithful and obedient, even when it was not convenient. And we see that through the life of David for the most part. So David, as I said a couple weeks ago, we looked at David and Goliath, the famous story of David defeating the giant. And from that moment on, David's popularity just shot through the roof. Not just his popularity, but he also got a promotion. So he's captain over the armies of Israel. He gets married. He finds a best friend in Saul's son, Jonathan. His success continues to increase. His popularity continues to increase. He's starting a family. I mean, like, all these things, life is going great for David. All of the victories, all of the successes, everything is going well, but that's gonna be very short-lived. Let's pick it up. 1 Samuel 18, starting in verse six. Here's what we see happen as the Israelite army was coming back from war. Verse six. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. So understand the setting here. The army's on their way back home. They're greeted with cheers and with people celebrating them on how victorious they had been. And it's all happening in front of King Saul. Again, even though King David has been chosen as the next king, Saul is still in power. Saul is still in control, which makes for a very interesting drama-filled scene of Saul in power, not going to be king for much longer. David's the future king, but not in power quite yet. Look at what they said to Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. This was their song. Saul has killed his, ten, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. How do you think that made Saul feel? Verse eight, we're gonna find out. This made Saul very angry. What's this? He said, they credit David with 10,000s and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king, which is actually technically pretty true, but we're not gonna tell Saul that quite yet. Verse nine, from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. So as David's success and popularity continue to increase, Saul's jealousy, bitterness, anger, and paranoia also increased to the point where Saul actually tried to kill David with his own hands. He threw a spear at David, did that twice. David was able to escape. Then Saul tried to find another sneaky and creative way to kill David, several different ways, one of which trying to put him on the front lines. Maybe he'd get killed, but David continued to be successful. So all these ways that Saul's trying to kill David, none of them are working. So in chapter 19, finally and officially, Saul declares David as an enemy of the state. Verse 1, chapter 19, Saul now urged his servants and his son Jonathan to assassinate David. Verse 11, then Saul sent troops to David's house. They were told to kill David when he came out the next morning. So now he's taking this a step, a way, way step further. 
Interestingly enough, though, David's wife, which is Saul's daughter, but that made for a very interesting Thanksgiving dinner, she finds out what Saul is doing, tells her husband David, and says, you've got to just run. You've got to take off. You've got to escape. So David does just that, and he runs away, escapes Saul's men, but in that moment of running, he lost everything. He lost his position as captain. He lost his career. He lost his home. He lost his family. He lost his best friend and other friends. He lost everything in that moment and truly was running for his life. He ran away, and we're told in just a moment that he ran into the wilderness. Ran into the wilderness and started hiding in caves, and that's where we're going to kind of slow down our story. Chapter 24, if you want to be there, we'll spend the rest of our time today in chapter 24. Chapter 24 focuses in on David's time in the caves, running for his life, running away from this deranged king, and we find the future king hiding in the caves. Now, as we look at chapter 24, there's two things that I want you to really pay attention to, two kind of lessons or maybe even observations that we're going to make regarding David hiding out in caves out of chapter 24. The first one has to do with David's worship. How does David interact with God when he is running for his life, hiding in the wilderness in caves? How does he interact with God? What's his heart posture? What's his frame of mind? We want to see what that looks like for David. The second thing, first is worship. The second is his character. We've said this before that God does something when we are in our most difficult moments. God develops us and grows us and teaches us. What is God going to do to develop and grow David's character while he's hiding in caves? That's what we want to look at, those two things. His worship while he's in the caves and his character that is developed while he is in the caves. So let's see what happens. Verse 1 out of chapter 24. After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of Engadi. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. So key word there is wilderness. We just said that, that David has run into the wilderness and is hiding in caves. Saul is able to learn which area, which specific set of caves is David and his loyal few men hiding out at. Now, we're told that Saul took 3,000 elite, like special ops guys, to go with him. David had about four to 600 loyal misfits. And I say misfits because that's exactly what they were. Other people that were afraid of Saul, ran away and went to be with David. Other people that had found themselves in debt and were running for their life. So David is just like, basically, he's gathered a crowd of, of crazy misfits at this point. Not elite troops like Saul, but he's got some people with him, but he's up against some pretty rough odds. Focusing in on that word wilderness, I just said it, that God does something unique in our lives when we are in the wilderness. David spoke about this when he fought Goliath, right before he fought Goliath. He said that he spent time in the fields and something unique and special happens when we remove ourselves when the, from the distractions of our everyday life and we lean into the presence of God, just him and us. That solitude, that quiet, that wilderness space, God is allowed to do something in us. Sometimes those are very difficult times, those seasons of struggle and difficulty, but God is able to work in us, maybe even more so in these seasons and places and spaces 
of the wilderness or the fields. Like I said, I want us to look at what was his heart like? What was his posture like? What was the frame of mind that David was in when he, again, future king, supposed to be the next king of Israel, and here he is running for his life, hiding out in caves. Now, we're we're fortunate enough to be able to actually see into David's heart and mind in this time. Most of what David wrote, not all, but a lot of what David wrote in the Psalms, if you were to like turn to Psalms, a lot of these Psalms were written by David. Not all of them, but a good chunk of them. And some of those Psalms that David wrote are in this specific season. In fact, I'm going to put a 11 different Psalms up, chapters. This would be great Bible reading for you for the next week and a half. If it each day, today I'm going to read Psalm 5, and then tomorrow I'm going to read Psalm 7, and then 22. If you would do a chapter a day for the next 11 days, this, again, not all of them, but you're going to get a good picture of David's heart and his mindset when he is in difficult times. Very difficult times. You almost are going to be reading David's journal. That's what it's going to feel like. On this day, David, what were you feeling? What was your heart like? What were you thinking? What were you upset about? What was going on in your heart and mind? And you're going to be able to read, and it's like reading his own journal. I want to focus on that last one, 142. Read the rest of them, but this is, this is similar to what you're going to read. There's a lot of commonalities and similarities between all those Psalms. Psalm 142, let me read it for you. And notice, if you've got like an actual physical Bible, you would see this next to 142. It says, a Psalm of David regarding his experience in the cave. So what we're about to read is exactly what he is thinking and feeling with what we were reading out of 1 Samuel. Does that make sense? This is his journal from the moments he was in the cave. Verse 1, David writes, I cry out to the Lord. I plead for the Lord's mercy. I pour out my complaints before him and tell him all my troubles. When I'm overwhelmed, you alone know the way I should turn. Wherever I go, my enemies have set traps for me. I look for someone to come and help me, but no one gives me a passing thought. No one will help me. No one cares a bit of what happens to me. So then I pray to you, O Lord. I say, you are my place of refuge. You are all I really want in life. Hear my cry, for I am very low. Rescue me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison so I can thank you. The godly will crowd around me, for you are good to me. That is the heart and mind of David when he's running for his life, hiding out in a cave and being pursued by a deranged king with 3,000 elite soldiers. That's what's actually happening. Now, I read this and, and you read those phrases like, I cry out and I plead and I pour out my complaints and I'm overwhelmed. No one will help me. No one cares. I'm very low. They are too strong for me. Like that. That is not language of a hero, is it? That's not language from a warrior. Again, this is David, future king of Israel, who just fought and defeated the Philistine, the Philistine giant Goliath. This is the David that has been victorious in all of his battles. And this is how he begins to pour out his heart to God. If you were to read not just Psalm 142, but those other Psalms that we put up on the screen a moment ago, you'll notice some commonalities and some similarities with all of them. The first one you would notice is the honesty that David gives. David is honest with God. 
What we don't read out of Psalm 142 in this moment when, when David is in the cave is, you know, life could be a little bit better. It's not the best right now, but it could be worse. We don't see that. We don't see David right. I'm really looking for the silver lining in this whole cave thing. You know, cave life is not that bad. Hashtag minimalist. You don't see that. No, David writes and says, I'm not okay. This situation is not okay. I don't think I'm going to be okay. That's what he writes. Again, listen to the honesty. You are my place of refuge. They are too strong for me. I pour out my complaints. I am overwhelmed. He's being brutally honest to God. Honesty is important, especially in our relationship with God. If we want to have a deeper, more meaningful and intimate relationship with God, we have to be willing to be honest in our worship to him. So often as Christians, we feel like when we're having a bad day and a bad season, when we're dealing with the struggles and the difficulties of life, that we for some reason have to put on this smiley face and say, but God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Even right now when life is terrible, but I'm happy because I have the joy of the Lord in my heart and I'm going to rejoice always. Like that's the way we're supposed to feel, right? Is it, that's how we think we're supposed to feel. That's how we think we're supposed to act. But you lose intimacy if you're not being honest. Spouses, you know this, right? If you want to have a deep, meaningful, strong and intimate relationship with your spouse, you cannot walk in the door and say, hey, honey, how was your day? Good, awesome. Babe, how was your day? Awesome. All right, see you later. No, like that doesn't work. That's shallow. You have to be willing to be honest with each other. It's not just good and fine. You have to lean in. Intimacy requires honesty in our relationships with one another, but most certainly in our relationship with God. So when you are in a cave-like season, like David was in, when you worship God, you worship God with honesty. And that will grow your intimacy with him. There's another side to it, though. The other similarity and commonality you'll see throughout David's psalms and his journaling, so to speak, and his prayers is not just all the problems. Like, let me read them one more time and, and kind of just hear what it sounds like. I cry out, I plead, I pour out my complaints, I tell my troubles, I'm overwhelmed. No one gives me a thought. No one will help me. No one cares. I'm very low. They are too strong. Like all of those phrases almost sound just like whining, don't they? No one cares and no one's this and this is too strong and I can't this. Like, it almost sounds like whining. So there's a big difference between whining and worship. And the big difference is the next part of these sentences. I cry out to the Lord. I plead for the Lord's mercy. I pour my complaints before him. I tell him all my troubles. When I am overwhelmed, you, God, alone know where I should go. No one gives me a thought, but I pray to you because you are my refuge. You are all I want in life. And yes, they're too strong for me, but God, you are good to me. Do you see the difference there? We're honest with God, but we also are honest about the realities of who God is, not just our problems. That's the difference between whining and worship is we bring our problems to the one who can do something about it. We bring our struggles to the one who knows us better, 
who is powerful enough to do something and cares enough to be willing to do something. Real quick, let me give a, a couple quotes on worship that will help this hopefully sink in. Bob Coughlin, a worship artist, said this, to worship God is to humble everything about ourselves and exalt everything about him. I love that picture, lower and higher. Now, this does not ignore our problems and our current realities. Nowhere does David ignore his current issues and problems, but he does place them underneath God and recognizes how great God is. He exalts God. Francis Chan said it this way. He said, many spirit-filled authors have exhausted the thesaurus in order to describe God with the glory he deserves. His perfect holiness, by definition, assures us that our words can't contain him. And I love this last rhetorical question. Isn't it a comfort to worship a God we cannot exaggerate? I love that. You cannot exaggerate the greatness of God. You cannot exaggerate the goodness of God. You cannot exaggerate the power or the grace or the love or the forgiveness of God. So when David is giving God the brutal, honest truth of how rough life is and how terrible things are and how frustrated he is and how overwhelmed he is, he's being honest, but he also is able to give the the, the realities of who God is. But God, you are so much greater. And God, you are so much powerful, more powerful. So God, my trust is in you. That is how we worship in the caves. That's the heart of David, the mindset of David. In one of his lowest and most difficult times, we worship with honesty and we go to God every single time. All right, let's go back to the caves for the next part. So that was worship. Now let's focus on David's character. Verse four, now here, oh, I'm sorry, verse three. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. The Hebrew word there is potty, by the way. So he went into the cave to relieve himself, but as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Now, Parents, if you have boys, if you have sons, this is your verse for the week, at least. You're going to get in the car today, and you're going to ask your kid, hey, what'd you learn about in church today? And they're going to tell you something great. And then you're going to say, oh, yeah, well, I learned about Saul going number two in the cave. And they're going to be like, what? And you're going to be like, yeah, check it out. And your kids are going to love the Bible this week because you get to talk about, like, bathroom stuff. <laughs> you're welcome, moms. You're like, seriously? We don't outgrow it, just so you know. The boys do not outgrow it. I'm old and mature, and I still think this is hilarious. <laughs> Verse four, notice what happens. So now's your opportunity. David's men whispered to him, today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David's men are telling him, go get him, go get Saul, he's right there. Look, his pants are at his ankles, you can do this. <laughs> so David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. Now, real quick, that idea of Saul's robe is real important. If you study the life of Samuel and, and Saul and David and all three of them, Old Testament, you'll know that robes are significant and they were, they, they were symbols of authority. So if a robe was cut, then it's saying your authority has now been removed. If a robe was placed on your shoulders, now authority has been given to you. So what David is doing symbolically is saying authority is gone from you now. I'm now king. Your old news, I'm in. That was the significance of him cutting Saul's robe. Verse five. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to, look what he calls Saul. 
my Lord, the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. It's fascinating. Quick observation. Notice what David's men were whispering to him. This is your opportunity. God has actually said this. They even quoted, well, they misquoted God. God has actually said, here's your opportunity. And David at first listened to those men. Those men were loyal, but they weren't right. I think there's a good little side lesson there for us. It's great to have loyal people around you, but that doesn't mean they're always right. That's why we listen to the truth that is only found in God's word, not just the people in the caves with us. We look for God's word, the truth in God's word, and that is who we listen to. And that's what David started to listen to afterwards. Because it's easy to rationalize this. Well, Saul started it. I'm just responding. Like we can, David could rationalize all day long why it was okay to go ahead and kill Saul in this moment. But then his conscience, as Christians, we know that's the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. God began to speak to him, and David started to listen to God over the other people in the cave. He said, no, 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 I can't do this. I won't do this. This is not the right way. And we're back to where we started. The end result matters, but so does the way in which we get to the end result. It's follow God's will, God's way. Not follow God's will, my way. It's following God's will, God's way. Was it God's will that David was to become the new king? Yes or no, if you've been studying with us? Yes, the answer is yes. God had chosen, picked him out personally, that David was to be the next king. So yes, God's will is that David would be king. Was it God's way that David should kill Saul to become king? No, not at all. But then that brings on another host of other questions. Well, then how is David going to be king? When is David going to be king? How is Saul going to be dethroned? When is Saul going to lose his power? How is Saul going to be able to step down? When will David be able to take the throne? How is he going to get the people to follow him? There's a lot of other questions. And the answer is, that's for God to figure out. God's will, yes, for David to be king. God's ways, God will take care of that. It is not for David to take matters into his own hands. And that's what he ends up telling his men. This is not my job. This is not the right way. The end result has to also include the right process as well as the right journey. God's will, God's way. I know I've noticed, at least in my own life, I push for my way when God's way seems too slow or too difficult. Those are usually in one of those two categories. Would it have been faster for David to become king if he killed Saul? Oh, yeah, absolutely. He would become king right then and there in the cave. Would it have been easier for David to have become king by killing Saul? A whole lot easier. But he decided to follow God's will and follow it God's way. It's not up to us to take matters into our own hands. That's part of our trust of God. Next part, after Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him, my Lord, the king. Notice how he talked about Saul again. That's the second time he used that phrase. He shouted out after him, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked around, David, look at what he does. David bowed low before him. He did what? David, you, this, is the, this is the man that's trying to kill you. 
Don't bow before him. Don't call him Lord. Don't call him king. He's trying to kill you. In fact, he's been trying to kill you in a lot of different ways for a long time. David, he is a deranged man. He is an evil king. He is disobeying God. He is bitter. He is full of anger. He is full of rage. David, don't call him Lord. Don't call him king. David, don't bow down. Take what's rightfully yours. That's what we want to say. But David chooses to submit under the authority of Saul. He chooses to say, my Lord, my King, and then bowed down to Saul. Why? Why in the world would David choose to submit to Saul? Have any of you ever had a bad boss? We all have bad boss stories, right? We all have bad bosses, right? And if we were to sit down and share the bad boss stories, I'm sure we'd each have a lot to complain about. Well, they did this and they never appreciated that and they had these unreal expectations and we'd all have plenty to say about our bad boss stories and we'd threaten to quit. Maybe you did quit. Like I'll show them like, All of us have the bad boss story. And I bet if we did sit down and we went through all those stories and all those complaints, at some point, the conversation would start to allude to this one phrase that you would probably say, and I know I would say. Somewhere we would say, yeah, and if I'm ever boss and if I'm ever in charge or if I'm ever in that position, I will never, and then we'll fill in the blank with all the things that our bad boss did. If I'm ever in charge, I'm never gonna do it like them. If I'm ever boss, I'm never going to treat people like they did. We've learned something, haven't we? So even though we have a lot to complain about with those bad boss stories, we're kind of thankful for the bad boss, aren't we? I'm a better person because of some bad bosses. Because I knew what it felt like, and so I'm never going to treat people like that. What is God doing in the wilderness and in the caves? What is God doing in David as he submits Under the authority of Saul, God's working on the heart of David. Let me say it this way. Serving under a Saul allows God to remove the Saul that's in you. When you serve underneath a Saul, it allows God to remove that Saul that's in each and every one of us. David was a man after God's own heart. He still had a little bit of Saul in him. We're going to see that in a couple weeks, a very interesting story where that actually starts to come out. And remember, the main problem with Saul was that he was insecure, he was self-centered, and he obeyed God only when it was convenient. Let's let that sit there for a second because that's a little convicting. We paint Saul to be such an evil person. But insecure, we can relate. Self-centered, self-focused, we can relate. Obeys God only when it's convenient, we can relate. So what God is trying to do is remove that out of David before David actually becomes king. God is trying to develop the heart and character of a king in David before David actually becomes king and gains power and influence and responsibility. For each and every one of us, me and you, we have sins in our life and we have character flaws that we probably don't think are that big of a deal well, I'm just human and everybody makes mistakes and nobody's perfect. Like we have those things. Let me say this though. The character flaws that you and I have, 
the character flaws that you have now will exponentially grow to become more dangerous and destructive when you add power, responsibility, and influence. And we're not just talking about becoming king. Any influence, the people around you, any responsibilities that have been added to you, work, home, community, church, power, the people look to you. So those flaws and those sins, God wants to deal with them now so they don't continue to grow to the point of harming not just ourselves, but also the people around us. We know that to be true. It's, it's spelled out super, super clear in the New Testament that God uses difficulties to grow and develop our character. Romans 5, you don't have to turn that, I'll read it real quick. Romans 5 verse 3, Paul says, we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials. Why? We can rejoice when we're hiding out in caves. We can rejoice when we're on the run like David because we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. God is doing something in our hearts when we're serving under a Saul, when we are serving under those that we would say are not right. But God has a lot he wants to teach us. All right, last part of the story. After he bows down before King Saul, David then gives a speech to Saul. And basically, the, the gist of the speech is, Saul, why are you chasing me? I haven't done anything wrong. You're delusional. Like, there's nothing going on here. I'm not trying to take power from you. I'm not going to take power from you. I'm never going to harm you. I'm not going to kill you. That's up to God to take care of that. So, Saul, can we just stop this? That's basically what he gets at. And he ends, I want to read the last part of his speech to Saul. Verse, for, verse 15 says this. May the Lord therefore judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He, God, God is my advocate and he will rescue me from your power. Oh, that's powerful. Saul, I know you have the power of the throne, but my God's bigger and I'm gonna put my trust in him more than me. David's saying, I'm not gonna take matters into my own hands. That's not my job. It's God's way as well as God's will, but it's not my way. So Saul, I'm your servant. Saul comes back and feels terrible. You're the better man than me. You can read through it. But what's interesting is at the end of both of their speeches, Saul goes back home. David goes back to the cave. He goes back to one of his lowest points. He still has no answers. Well, when is David going to really become king? All those questions we were asking before. Well, when is this really going to happen? He's supposed to be future king. When does he actually become king? Now that David has almost killed Saul, but decided not to kill Saul because it's the right thing to do, when's God going to step in and take care of Saul? Like, when's all this going to happen? We have no idea. David has no idea. I say that, and I point that out because I've changed a prayer of mine. Um, as, as your pastor, I get a lot of emails, phone calls, texts, and, and, and conversations where a lot of you ask this main question, what do I do? Right? It's the what do I do question. I don't know what God wants me to do. It's this job or that job. It's this move or this move. It's this person. Like, what do I do? What do I do in this situation? And you know, my, my response used to be, and I meant it, was let me pray for clarity for you. I'm going to pray. And some of you are like, yeah, you did that for me. Sorry, it was the wrong thing to do. I've, I've changed what I'm going to say to you from now on. It's not about clarity. And here's why I say that. Because I don't think we're always going to get clarity. Even when we pray for it, I think God's like, no, I don't want you to know everything yet. So instead of praying for clarity, and instead of waiting for clarity, I've changed it 
to instead of waiting for clarity from God, just look for opportunities to trust God and to serve others. Start there. Yeah, 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 yeah. But like, what am I actually supposed to do? Well, look around. I bet you can find some way that would cause you to have to trust God just a little bit more. And I bet you could look around and see some people that you could love or serve along the way. It's not just about the end result, but it's the journey of which we get there. So you might not know what that end result is yet. Or if you do, you have no idea what, what's going to happen and how long it's going to take. So what do you do in the meantime? We do what David did. Going back to the caves required trusting God a lot. Killing Saul would have been trusting David. Going back to the caves would have been trusting God. Serving people around you, he lowered himself underneath a disobedient, evil king and said, I'm going to trust God with this, and I'm going to do what I know is right. I'm going to do God's will, God's way. So what did David do in the cave? What did he learn in the caves? He learned how to worship God with complete honesty and with a deep, deep trust that grew his intimacy with God. So in your seasons of difficulty, can I encourage you to do the same thing? Worship with honesty, but worship God. Go to him. You cannot exaggerate his qualities. Allow God to develop your character. When you serve underneath a Saul for that season, it allows God to change you and develop you into the man and woman he desires you to be. What David did in the cave, how he worshiped and how, how he worshiped and how he acted, resembles a king much, much later on that prayed in a garden. Similar to what King David did in the cave, King Jesus did in what we call the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark chapter 14, verse 34, right before Jesus was arrested, we're told this. Jesus told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus went a little further and fell to the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, if it were possible, that the awful hour awaiting him might pass by. Verse 36, Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Oh, in this last part, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus worshiped with honesty, but with a heartfelt cry to God, his Father, our Heavenly Father. Worshiped with honesty. And it was God's will and God's way. If there's any other way, take this cup from me. If there's any other way other than the cross, but Jesus' words. But this isn't about my way. God, it's about your way. Full trust. And I thank God that Jesus was willing to follow God's will, God's way. Because that's how we get to call God our Father. That's how we get to call Jesus our Savior. That's how we get to call the Holy Spirit that we are the home and the temple and the dwelling place of his spirit in us because Jesus followed God's will, God's way. The only way that we can find salvation is because of the cross. 
that Jesus endured, went to the cross, allowed himself to be crucified and sacrificed for us. His death conquered sin and death, gave us life. Jesus' resurrection is what gives us hope, hope for eternal life with him forever. But it's because Jesus followed God's will, God's way. So I would say two things to you as we end. The first is if you don't have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you're still trying to do things with your will in mind and your way in mind, you've got to submit to the King, the true King, the one and only King. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's his way, not your way. Your way might seem faster, your way may seem easier, but I'm going to be the one to tell you, but it's the wrong way. You've got to go through Jesus. Second thing I would tell you is let's follow the example of Jesus. Sure, there's a lot of great lessons in David's life that sure, we can learn from, but the goal is not to follow David's example. The goal is to follow the example of Christ. Not your will, not my will, but your will be done. May we follow in the footsteps of our Savior. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much for your sacrifice on the cross and your sacrifice of your own will in your own way that you trusted our heavenly father in the way that leads to our salvation, the cross. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Thank you for the resurrection that gives us hope and life now and in the next. And may we follow in your footsteps to worship even in those seasons of difficulty, to worship with honesty and a full heart. And may we allow you to develop our character in the process. May we become who you desire us to be, your will and your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen.